Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Average Intelligence Podcast. As always, well, not as always, but tonight, I will be flying solo. Eric is unfortunately not feeling well, and I hope he feels better soon, but the show must go on. We were originally going to be discussing the juicy smoothier sentencing today, but given the chance to prattle on for an hour or so, I took the liberty of making this a very pessimistic podcast and talking about how the world is essentially fucked right now. But don't worry. Well, worry, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Because if you stick to the end, I'm going to tell you what we, the people of the planet Earth, because yes, this is a global problem, can do to fix our own shit. But before I get into these things, I want to stress that ultimately, while I will be citing some facts and information, this is largely my opinion. Forgive me, just checking the audio there, making sure everyone can hear me. And for those of you that are in the chat, feel free to join the discussion, because as I said, this is mostly my opinion based upon my observations. So the obvious elephant in the room is what's currently going on in Ukraine. And it has, I shouldn't say just, but it has recently been revealed that the United States has been funding and or running, depending upon who you ask, several biolabs within the country of Ukraine. Now, Russia, specifically Vladimir Putin, is asserting that these are chemical weapons factories, and that is the problem that he has. The Biden administration has gone on record stating that these are laboratories that are researching dangerous pathogens. As if that's any better, considering what's been going on. Now, to put on my proverbial tinfoil hat, I read the White House... Their, their statement in response to these allegations when Russia made them. And that level of denial, literally at one point calling the allegations absurd, I've only seen that level of denial when a cheating husband is found in bed with the prostitute and the used condom. At least he was decent enough to use a condom. So I'm a little hesitant to believe the government out of the blue simply because of their reaction. These are the kinds of reactions that you see typically when people are caught in a lie and just don't have the decency to fess up. Now, I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm simply stating how it appears to me. Now, do I think these labs are chemical weapons factories? I, I don't know. I truly don't know. It is more than likely, given the historical precedent, that Russia would be seeking to have these identified as chemical weapons plants and then create a false flag situation 
uh, similar to what happened in Syria. Now, that being said, do I think that the United States government is up to some sketchy shit in these labs? Absolutely, because we have fairly recent historical precedent to fall back on. The, uh, the beer bug, the virus of unspecified origin. The more commonly, uh, the beer bug. I actually like the beer bug. So that's a good, that's a good YouTube friendly one that's still pretty obvious, but I ain't scared. COVID-19, who, if we can all remember from one of my previous solo specials, we discussed this at length about how now it is apparently okay to subscribe to subscribe to the lab leak theory, which I think it's only a theory in the sense that we haven't found that smoking gun, although we found some a lot of very compelling evidence. That being said, the White House's uh, reaction to these allegations really does lead me to believe that there is some relatively sketchy shit going on and that Russia may not be correct, but there might be cause for alarm. And then continuing on to uh, the happenings of Russia against Ukraine, it would take a significant amount of (laughs) mental gymnastics to say something to the effect of that Russia's actions in Ukraine have absolutely nothing to do with the Biden administration's failure uh, to maintain order in Afghanistan. Now, this one is a controversial one, so full disclaimer, I am not, nor have I been in the military. All of these figures that I will be citing have been taken from credible sources, namely, uh, basically, the United States government. And the opinions that I'm sharing are not inherently mine. Rather, my opinions have changed over the years after listening to people who have been on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, namely uh, people like Dan Crenshaw and Jonko Willink and a few other lesser known, but still people who have seen combat over there. Uh, I was initially at the time, which again, that was years ago and I was quite young, I was never really against the action in Afghanistan when it happened, although, I, again, this was 2001. I think I was in the eighth grade. So with my limited knowledge, I was pretty well for it. Iraq was a little bit sketchier, but we're not talking about Iraq right now. We're talking about Afghanistan. So the number one argument, basically, from the Biden administration and the left at large was that the war in Afghanistan needed to end. But there are other people, namely Dan Crenshaw, in this case, who basically asserted the war was essentially over. Um, The troops that were in Afghanistan were essentially a peacekeeping force there to train and essentially not even reinforce, but just bolster up as a deterrent until the Afghan, the country of Afghanistan was ready to basically take over their own uh, destiny. And a lot of people were saying something to the effect of that, you know, it's been 20 years, it's been long enough, and we might have been close to it. Certainly things appeared to be going better, but, and I, for, and I apologize, I forget who made this point, but it was a very good point. Someone, I heard someone make the point that a country like, Af- or I shouldn't even say a country, a group of people like the Afghan people at large who had been living a certain way 
for arguably at least decades, if not a century, that's not going to change overnight. You may have a correct, right, righteous, and morally justified worldview, but if you're presenting it to a people that have thought a completely different way for 100 or 200 years, it is going to take time for that message to permeate through the populace. Sure, there will be some early adopters. This is how religions start. But it will take time for these ideas, however righteous they may be, and for however, however truthful they may be, it will take time for them to permeate through the populace. And once the people at large see the benefit of these new ideas, then it will take hold. 20 years is not a super long time. It's long enough to start it's long enough to start change and see some growth and benefits, but it is hardly long enough to, particularly when the original people who held power are still around and interested in taking over the country again. And this is not something that the United States didn't know. So that being said, uh, I will go over now some highlights of troop levels in Afghanistan, starting with November of 2001, the initial amount of troops sent to Afghanistan was 1,300. In December 2001, that number rose to 2,500. By March of 2002, it was up to 7,200. By December of 2002, that number had risen to 9,700. And by December of the following year, we were up to 13,100. April saw a spike that brought us up to 20,300. This is April 2004, excuse me. And then the numbers stayed pretty much the same. By December of 2006, we were at around 20,000. And then by December of 07, we were at 25,000 approximately. May of 2009 saw another troop surge up to 50,000. And then by December of 2009, we were at 67,000 troops uh, active, boots on the ground in Afghanistan. By August 2010, if you recall, this is when things started getting very dicey very, very dicey, and had a lot of more insurgent activity, so we had several surges. August 2010, we were at 100,000. By May of 2000, uh, I'm sorry, yes, by May of 2011, we were at 100,000, but this is around the time that bin Laden was killed. And from that point on, the Obama administration was very heavily, uh, very heavily enthusiastic about the idea of bringing more and more American troops home. And they did. Uh, we saw gradual reductions in troops in Afghanistan. Uh, September 2012, we were down to 77,000. By December of 2013, that number was closer to 46,000. And then by March of 2014, we were at 34,000. And this is when Obama, uh, Barack Obama announces a plan to pull out virtually all troops uh, hadn't set a deadline yet, but it was his intention to withdraw all troops from Afghanistan. By December 2014, that number was down to 16,100, and by March 2015, we were down to 9,800. In July of 2016, uh, before basically the troop level had gone down to 8,400, and Obama had essentially said that they were going to leave that number alone and then let the new incoming president decide where to go from there. And then, of course, we saw gradual troop reductions during the Trump administration. Uh, nothing huge of note, but basically, by the time 
uh, Joe Biden was sworn in as president of the United States. The number of active duty military personnel in Afghanistan, active troops, was 2,500. Now, just to put this into perspective, uh, <laughs> the United States has a huge uh, troop presence around the world. And just to cite some examples, in Japan, the United States military currently has approximately 56,000 troops uh, stationed in Japan. In Korea, 25,000. Germany has 35,000. The United Kingdom has over 9,000. Did not think of that Vegeta joke, but if I had a soundboard. And just to kind of put this into perspective, remember, Afghanistan had 2,500 troops. Spain currently has a little over 3,000 active U.S. troops stationed in the country. And as Dan Crenshaw would point out several times, you know, if you look at the troop content, the number of troops in Afghanistan by the U.S. military at the time, it was hardly even, it wasn't even in the top, it certainly wasn't even in the top 10. It was essentially there, as he put it, for logistical support. And just as a deterrent to let, you know, people know the United States military was still present and active. Biden was on record saying that a U.S. withdrawal would not be another Saigon. He also was on record saying that his advisors uh, did not warn him about any possible poor outcomes. This turned out to be a lie. A bold-faced lie, one that cannot be defended because there's video evidence of the contrary. You can Google search this. I don't need to go into it. It's very easy to find. And then when everything started, like he was warned several times and he was still insistent on withdrawing troops. And needless to say, we know how that happened. The Taliban has taken control of Afghanistan once again. Now, you may not... And there are many people that feel this way. You may not have agreed to United States action, military action in Afghanistan, but many people also believe that once the decision was made, it was not wise to simply give up and basically just piss away 20 years worth of sacrifice, money, work, all that. And in addition to just the immediate negative offense of you know, the fall of Afghanistan back to the Taliban, this sent a message around the world. And I believe I said it on this podcast, this is very bad because it has shown the international community that the United States uh, basically just does not have the stomach for military action. Now, that's a pretty bold statement and probably a bit hyperbolic, but I'm trying to present the message as certain members of the international community may have seen it. And this comes into play. I think it's foolish to say something to the effect of, well, I'm, I'm going to back that up and rephrase. I don't believe that Vladimir Putin would have done anything to Ukraine if Donald Trump was still in office. And the reason I say that is because, and this is not a credit to the man, this is more of a, it's a detriment of his personality, but it's a positive effect in this regard. Donald Trump is the kind of guy who, and I, I wish I could remember who said this, but he was a left-leaning journalist. I believe he works for The Guardian, but I could be wrong. 
essentially said something to the oh no it was trevor noah i'm sorry i heard trevor noah say this but i heard somebody else say something similar trevor noah as we all know uh from the daily show said something to the and this this is worth noting because i don't think it's a secret that trevor noah leans left although he's not as bad as he's not nearly as bad as some others but he did he conceded that under trump this probably would not have happened because trump is crazy enough to where you're not exactly sure what he's going to do if you pull if you try to pull a fast one simply put he might press the button and putin knew this now putin is or strikes me as a very patient man so he saw an opportunity and took it and now granted it's not going his way which is a good thing but the international community has not responded with direct military response, which is what he was hoping for. Um, he did not count on the resistance of Ukraine. <laughs> of course, it helps, generally speaking, when you don't lie to your soldiers and then they get to where they're supposed to go and they find out that's not what they were sent there for. So that generally doesn't help either. And there have been a ton of reports coming out, both official and unofficial, of Russian troops surrendering, being told things like, we thought we were here for military exercises, or we thought we were here to, you know, do something, but it turns out that's not the case. They, it appears that they are ill-prepared and ill-willed uh, to fight in Ukraine. So these are all very, very good things, but the Joe Biden-Putin-Ukraine story isn't anything new this goes back to at least 2014 as to how this is all linked together so if we put on our history caps and we remember that in 2014 this is when hunter biden joins the board of burisma which is the one of the largest energy actually i believe the largest energy company independent energy company in ukraine and joe biden happens to be the acting vice president of the united states at this time and this is also just after the Ukrainian Revolution. And on the heels of, the Ukra of Ukraine owing a huge amount to Russia, a huge amount of money to Russia uh, for natural gas, uh, which they uh, imported from Russia. And this was one of the alleged reasons why Russia annexed the Crimea. Or Crimea, I, excuse me, I shouldn't say the Crimea, and I certainly shouldn't say the Ukraine. I finally found out why that is not kosher. So, but Crimea is annexed in 2014 uh, because of suspected corruption and large debts due to natural gas and an alleged referendum that was completely legitimate, wink, wink. Uh, don't know, but there's, there's, there's precedent to believe that this was tampered with. Uh, but Russia successfully annexed Ukraine, and the international community kind of, I think there were some sanctions put in place, but largely they, they got away with it, essentially. Now, put on our historical caps again and go further back, uh, there is historical precedence for this. this. When this was all happening, I was instantly reminded of Neville Chamberlain. And don't worry, if you don't know who that is, I'm about to tell you, so get ready for a history lesson. <clears throat> If we go back to the 1930s, and we, of course, know that Germany is recovering from economic collapse. Adolf Hitler is the new Fuhrer of Germany, and he starts making moves very, very quickly. Uh, but in terms of things like the annexation of Crimea, 
this goes rough, just bullet point timeline. Uh, 1935, Germany reoccupies Tsarland, which is an area on the French border that was under League of Nations control until they voted to return to German rule. In fact, they probably did vote to return to German rule. And then in 1936, German, German troops re-enter an area known as the Rhineland, which had been demilitarized after the First World War. In 1938, Germans, German troops are welcomed into Austria the very night before a referendum in which the Austrian people were voting whether or not to join the German Reich. Now, Hitler sent his troops in early because he suspected the vote would not go his way. Turns out, uh, he was pretty much welcomed, certainly by the pro-Nazi sympathizers, but Austria basically came into the German Reich without a, uh, without a fight. Then later, in 1938, Germany threatens Czechoslovakia with force unless they give up the Sudetenland, which is an area kind of in the kind of a northern moon-shaped area of Czechoslovakia, which had a large German minority population. Now, the Czech military says, uh, fuck you, we're going to defend it. And they had, heavily they had heavy fortifications, and they uh, basically mobilized their military just in case of a German invasion. And Hitler backs off for the time being. But as soon as, almost as soon as this happened, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, Neville Chamberlain, spearheads talks with Germany for the Sudetenland because he, wary of war, not wanting to go to full-scale war and repeat the Great War, as it was known at the time. Basically, Germany agrees that it will not seek any more territorial gains in Europe in exchange for the Sudetenland. The deal is done, and Germany gets more territory. They march in and occupy the Sudetenland, and they have a promise note from Hitler saying that he won't take any more land. Look, hindsight's twenty twenty, but there were a lot of people, including Winston Churchill, who was like, this is a bad idea, it's only a matter of time. And sure enough, only a few months later, Hitler demands that Danzig, which is a port city in Poland at the time, but it was formerly a part of Germany, be returned to Germany so that East Prussia could be reconnected to Germany. So at the time, if you can imagine a map, you've got Germany over... Yeah, I'm sorry, it's mirrored. you got Germany over here, and then Poland closes a border, but then immediately east of Poland, there's a small pocket of land, East Prussia, that was still part of Germany, but they weren't connected. So Germany was trying to reconnect them via land. And Poland tells them to take a hike... So Hitler backs off again for the time being. But then in 1939, the Slovakian portion of Czechoslovakia, so think the more eastern side, asks Hitler for help with seeking greater independence from Czechoslovakia. Uh, German troops then enter Czechoslovakia. Most of the country becomes part of Germany, and then Slovakia is made a protectorate. And then, as we all know, in 1939, Germany invades Poland anyway, and that is where a lot of people believe that the Second World War officially kicks off, completely ignoring uh, the uh, Japanese aggressions in the 1930s. But a lot of history books say that 1939, Hitler's invasion of Poland, is the beginning of the Second World War semantics. I disagree, but that's where a lot of people say. 
and then speaking speaking of German historical precedent with uh, things happening on today, we can touch on hyperinflation. Um, but before I get into that in the Weimar Republic, I think it is absolutely hilarious that we literally have major news outlets saying things like, you know, inflation's not really that big of a deal. In fact, there was one article, I was looking up the statistic for the number of basically the percentage of active currency that was printed within the last year, which is roughly about 40%. Uh, that's a big deal. Uh, hyperinflation is a big deal. And then there are other people saying things like, oh, government spending and currency printing have nothing to do with hyperinflation. That is just fucking stupid. Because even taking common sense out of the equation, we have historical precedent. So uh, we'll give you another history lesson. It's funny, we keep going further back. It's weird how all this stuff is connected, right? Right? So anyway, we have the Weimar Republic, which is essentially the government that comes into fruition after uh, the Treaty of Versailles is signed, ending the First World War. And they had inflation pretty much from the get-go because Germany did get saddled with a lot, a lot of war reparations and debt because of it. So Germany finds itself in a situation where they start printing money uh, to pay war reparations and pay down the country's debt, the war debts from the debt they incurred from during the war. And then on top of all this, there are a lot of worker strikes, uh, striker, striking for higher pay, that led to even more money printing. So Germany is experiencing hyperinflation. And then here's part, oftentimes in history books, they skip to the Great Depression that exacerbates it. But there's actually, <laughs> this is really cool. There's actually a period of the Weimar Republic where they pretty much corrected the problem. And it was just a waiting game. Um, essentially what they did was they created a new currency. They basically uh, renumerized their currency. So they, they created a new currency, but they exchanged the old for the new. And then on top of that, they negotiated reparation reductions, not necessarily in total amount, but how much and when it had to be paid uh, so that it became more sustainable. And then they borrowed a bunch of money from foreign banks, nominally U.S. banks. I wonder if that will come into play later. Uh, remember, this is in the 1920s. So, yeah, that'll probably come into play labor later. And then they also borrowed a lot of money to uh, prop up German businesses to create more jobs, which creates more tax revenue and increases the GDP, which all around is good for the country. Then the Great Depression happens. And there are massive depressions happening all around the world because at this point, the global markets are at least somewhat connected. Um, but the big part that affects Germany is the fact that most of their loans were through banks in the United States. And they call in their loans. And Germany does not have the money on hand to pay it. So that leads to a pretty staggering economic collapse, which gives rise to several white right-wing groups, including the obviously mentioned Nazi party, and Adolf Hitler is able to take control of the country. So fast forward back to modern day, and where have we seen the government excessively spending? like to a ridiculous degree. And this is dogging on both Trump and Biden here. Uh, the COVID relief. Now, I believe I said this at the time on this podcast, but I will say it again. 
at the time of the first stimulus, I wasn't like, I knew it wasn't a good idea, but I could at least understand the sentiment behind it because this was an artificial shutdown. It was, it was literally the government shutting the economy down. And the least they could do was give people some money. It was kind of nice to have the average American bailed out as opposed to big businesses. But the problem is they did both and they spent a ton of money. And then they kept spending a ton of money and then added, put us up to, I mean, just ridiculous unemployment benefits. And it was all because the government shut businesses down. There's no denying this. It happened. That's why it happened. And even the first one, like I said, was not, it wasn't good, but it wasn't terrible. What was terrible was as we started to learn more and as it started to become, you know, less and less of an emergency situation, the government, which by now was under a Democrat administration, continued to spend incredible amounts of money. Just incredible. And... Literally, one of the stupidest things I've ever heard in my entire life, and I'm not picking on, I'm not trying to pick on Biden, but it's kind of hard not to, uh, considering that most of the time when he opens his mouth, bullshit comes out. Not, not even bullshit, because that implies a lie. That implies you know what you're saying. Just word vomit. Word vomit and bullshit comes out. So, <laughs> this is... Uh, uh, on this is after uh, unemployment numbers have been released and they're not terrible, but they're not quite as optimistic as the Biden administration had been hoping for. And Joe Biden gets on live national television and says, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember exactly what he said, but I believe it was something like this. <clears throat> we see no reason to believe that the, uh, unexpected job numbers have anything to do with the generous unemployment benefits. Really, you don't see any correlation between people not getting jobs when at that very moment you are literally paying people to stay home. And you don't see the connection. Really? And the truly sad part about all this is a lot of people believed him because they're so married to the ideology and the message that they completely, it's not even that they forget, they literally just put their heads in the sand and ignore shit that's right in front of them. But they've been doing it for two years at this point, so it's not terribly unexpected. Sorry, just going to take a sip. But I, I am I'm flabbergasted on an almost daily basis, certainly a weekly basis, about these politicians going on television and saying stupid shit and hardly anybody calling them out for it. And the people that are calling them out on it aren't shown on national television, heavily censored and or deplatformed. And, and yeah, I, I, I'm astonished that anyone can buy this nonsense, regardless of your political affiliations. Because you bet your ass if Trump had tried to pull that, and it would have still been bullshit. But, oh my God, it would have been a, a media frenzy, as it was often when Trump cited figures that were bullshit. Because he did. There's no... 
There's no denying it. He did. He pulled numbers out of his ass all the time. The only problem I had was the fact that when Trump did it, he was attacked. And when Biden does it, he's usually praised or the footage mysteriously vanishes somehow. Certainly is never replayed again if it was live. And as if this weren't enough, we have another example of hyperinflation, which is significantly worse than what the United States is experiencing right now. The United States has the luxury of the fact that our currency is still kind of the de facto, well, not kind of, the U.S. dollar is still the de facto international trade currency for most of the world. I'm not going to say all because, for example, Russia stopped accepting U.S. dollars. So there are countries around the world that don't use the dollar for international trade, but it is the primary. So the amount of money that's in use really helps value our currency. But if you will indulge me, we're going to talk about a South American country named Venezuela. Now, Venezuela, as you may be aware, is still experiencing rampant hyperinflation to the point of starvation for a, the bulk of its citizens. Now, again, there's a lot of misinformation about what's happening in Venezuela because for some reason that escapes me. There are a number of high-profile politicians in the United States that really like the idea of socialism for some reason, so much so that they won't even entertain legitimate criticisms. I'm talking about you, Bernie Sanders, AOC, and to a point, Biden, even though he claims not to, um, even though he's backtracked on a couple of things where he seemed it was a good idea, and then people scream socialism, and he's like, oh, we're not going to do that. That's a bad idea. So I'm going to give you the super way too condensed version because there there's a myriad of things that contributed to the situation in Venezuela but this is the very very basic one might say the averagely intelligent uh uh look our our logo's a chimp in a suit for a reason but i'm going to give you the super condensed and overly simplified version but i highly recommend that you do your own research and if you can talk to people from Venezuela i actually had as luck, not luck, I shouldn't say luck, as coincidence as it may be, I had a gentleman stop in at my store looking for work, and thank God I speak some Spanish, uh, because I was able to talk to him a bit, and he came from Venezuela three years ago. And I basically asked him, is it as bad as they say it is down there? And he said, yes, it's that bad. Like, most people are starving, uh, people who can get out, have gotten out, but unfortunately most people are unable to. And if you recall, there were mass exoduses of people trying to leave Venezuela, and many of them were turned back at gunpoint by the national police and or military. But, you know, that's that's all but disappeared. And it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. Our, our, our biggest problem as a country, I do believe, is our short-term memory loss. Like, it's it's bad. Like, we forget... We forget almost instantly. Once they stop talking about it on CNN, it's forgotten. Completely forgotten. And Venezuela is no exception. But anyway, the super condensed, overly simplistic, and maybe, again, I will say, if I'm wrong on anything, I want you, I want you, Uncle Sam Steyer, I want you to call my bullshit. I will be happy to talk to you, even, even and especially if you have a dissenting opinion. Just leave a comment down below. And we will respond somehow, some way. Might even invite you on the podcast. We love debates here. 
just nobody ever debates us, probably because we're still small, but we hope to change that. But anyway, Venezuela. So Venezuela, at this time, is a socialist country whose largest, pretty much their only export, not literally, but for all intents and purposes, their only export is their oil. Now, Venezuela has some of the largest, if not the largest, I'm trying to remember, but certainly some of, if not the largest, oil reserves on planet Earth. So it makes sense that they're exporting it. It accounts for about 50% of their GDP. Now, Venezuela becomes very rich because of its oil. So they begin to spend a fuck ton of money on very, very generous social and welfare programs. Now, these programs are very expensive. And not only are they spending the bulk of their money that they're making from oil, but they're also borrowing a lot of money uh, to keep these social programs going. Now, over the years, the price of oil fluctuates, and but it's on a downward trend overall. So their deficit grows way too high, and they have saved virtually no money uh, to, you know, get them through an economic collapse because when life is good, why save, right? Anyway, oil prices over the span of years dropped from about $100 a barrel to $33 a barrel. Now, that may not sound like a big deal, but also when you compound just the average inflation that happens, that's a hell of a decrease. The price of oil, if it if it just retained its value, it would still incrementally go up. So this kind of drop is a big deal, particularly for Venezuela. So that means a significantly less, significantly less money coming into Venezuela. But they still keep these social programs going, which means they're borrowing more and more money. Now, in addition to borrowing, they come up with a great idea as though it's never been done before. Let's just print the money. Now, their money is not attached to anything of value because if it was, they wouldn't be able to just print it willy-nilly, which is one of the many criticisms of the U.S. removing itself from the gold standard. Uh, like I said, right now, it could be argued that our currency is really tied to oil unofficially, um, but that's a different matter. But that's pretty much how it's retaining its value. A big portion of why it's retaining its value. So anyway... Venezuela just continues to spiral with their hyperinflation, and then it reaches a point where it leads to basically an economic collapse. So we are now in a situation where not only is the currency virtually worthless, but because the currency is virtually worthless, the government can also no longer continue the social programs. So it's just a complete and utter collapse. So that is the state in Venezuela, and it has not gotten better from my understanding, but I reiterate if you have more information on this, please share. I would be happy to talk to you, particularly if you are in or have come from Venezuela or you have family members. We want to talk to you. So that's the state of play of money right now, and it's no secret that inflation... I mean, look at the gas prices. Look at the increased cost of food. And not only the increased cost of food, we also have the added bonus of having the supply chain issues we've been having. Now, it's not a complete collapse, but it's certainly noticeable. Uh, in my industry, we've been feeling it for two years, and it hasn't gotten better. Shipping is delayed and more expensive. There's constant price increases going up on virtually everything. You've seen it at the grocery store, I'm sure. 
And it, it, this, the sad thing is, is that even if all these problems were fixed tomorrow, it would still take time for the market to correct itself. And some, at least in my industry, this lovely little thing happens because it happened when the, Ch the China tariffs were put in as well. Even when the cost of lumber went down, their prices didn't go down because once you know you can charge something, it's very rare, unless it's a commodity, it's very, very rare that you will see price decreases. So even if these things correct themselves, things are still going to be more expensive. That's probably never going to go away. It will for gas prices if the market corrects itself. But for the most part, everything's going to stay fairly expensive. Food prices might dip back down a little bit, but for you know, non-essential things, non-commodity things, uh, these things are probably not going to go down ever. So these increased prices are here to stay, if not get worse for most things. Cars are probably another one, although there are things they can do to uh, lower costs on there. But you're probably still going to see some pretty high sticker prices for the foreseeable future. In addition to the clusterfuck that is the monetary situation, um, this is going back to the United States you know, basically, I don't want to say admitting defeat, but pulling out of Afghanistan prematurely. Bad things always happen when you pull out prematurely. Or late. I was trying to make a metaphor work there, and it didn't work. I apologize for that. Uh, so now we're going to move over to China, and what I fear is uh, dominoes that have been set up and I don't think can be corrected. So a little bit of history, everybody, or at least I hope everyone is aware of what was going on in Hong Kong. Now, there's a lot of, and namely from Ben Shapiro, from what I've heard, but there's a lot of people that seem to be on the right that make it sound like China basically took over Hong Kong. And I guess that's kind of true, depending on your point of view, but the way they phrase it makes it sound like they invaded. And I just want to correct that little uh, bit of potential misinformation. So Hong Kong was basically part of the British, a British protectorate through a treaty from a long, long time ago. But the treaty stated that in the year 1997, Hong Kong would be returned to China. Now, oh, I'm getting to Taiwan, stoner bros. I'm talking about Hong Kong right now, but I'm getting there. I'm talking about Hong Kong so that we can kind of set this, uh, just make it clearer. So Hong Kong was technically a part of China. However, they were culturally so different that they kind of, they weren't autonomous, but they kind of behaved as though they were. They were part of China, but they kind of did their own thing. Uh, but China pretty well shut down the protests because there were many people in Hong Kong that didn't want to be a part of China, didn't want to be part of a communist regime, wanted to become independent. And China stomped that right out. And the United States did very little, as did the rest of the free world. I mean, we kind of helped, but not really, because if we had helped, we might have seen an Although, let's be real, because of where Hong Kong is located, I highly doubt they could maintain independence from China at all, which may be why the international community didn't help out that much. But that leads us to Taiwan, which Stoner Bros pointed out. And I, I feared that... Now, the one saving grace for Taiwan might be the fact that things did not really go Russia's way, at least not yet. Uh, I think China is essentially just crouched and waiting and they got some indications because they did beef up their naval presence close to Taiwan and started doing some, you know, te military testing and exercises uh, when the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan. Because I think I, China is just poised and waiting for an opportunity at this point. I'm certain they 
and Taiwan has been not a thorn in their side, but it's been an object of contention for them really since the end of, you know, the communist revolution in China, because Taiwan is, it depends on your point of view, honestly, it's technically part of China, but they kind of declared themselves independent when the communists took over mainland China, which is why uh, John Cena, his infamous apology video, uh, because he, I believe it was because he said Taiwan as though it wasn't part of China. Similar to Tibet. If you mention Tibet, they get real, they get real antsy. And then they actually changed part of, they removed a patch from Maverick's jacket in the upcoming, uh, the new Top Gun movie because he had the Taiwanese flag on it. And because China is so involved in our film industry, monetarily speaking, they said, yeah, fuck that. That's not, we're not having that. So they actually had to digitally remove the Taiwanese flag from Maverick's jacket to appease the CCP. And I am concerned. I was concerned when Russia first invaded because I, I really do believe that if World War Three was to start, this is how I believe it would go. This Again, this is before things kind of didn't go Putin's way in Ukraine, but this is what I suspected. I suspected that Russia would invade Ukraine, topple the country uh, not very, not a very long time. China would then seize the opportunity to take control of Taiwan, and if they were unopposed, it's only a matter of time before they have other ambitions. India may take this time. India or Pakistan may take this opportunity to, you know, engage each other militarily speaking and then it just becomes a domino effect and at a certain point now this would probably be a much slower burn because nobody is outright attacking a nato country or an eu country so we would probably see something similar to the build-up of the second world war where there are a lot of you know smaller military actions before somebody invades a or mil has military action against a bigger uh, country in this case more than likely a nato ally and then things would just go to shit now the problem that we have today is the fact that russia and the united states and other countries around the world have nuclear weapons oh and north korea would probably take the opportunity to attack south korea in these events uh, particularly if japan and the united states and india are busy uh, dealing with china that is just what i would be afraid would happen and I still think you might see a certain degree of countries kind of prodding because Belarus has kind of acted like they've, they've uh, increased troops along their border. Um, they're kind of acting like they might be taking action in Ukraine, but because they're, they're, they're pretty tightly allied with Russia, it's a borderline puppet state if it's not actually a puppet state. Um, but we'll see what happens there. Because again, I think this was all dependent on Ukraine falling, and I don't think Ukraine is falling, so... They certainly aren't falling at the speed. I don't think they're going to fall unless something drastically different happens. So hopefully we avoid a third world war. I would very, very much like to avoid that. There's no way you slice it. With the technology we have today, just the fact that we have nuclear weapons, I think it would, I think it would eventually happen. And that's something I'm sure we would all like to avoid. Now, this being said, Putin's in a not very ideal situation in that he pretty much has to completely give up. But if he does that, then he is showing weakness to the West, 
who will probably not back off many of not all of their sanctions anyway and then it it becomes the opposite of what they were going for um and then it's pretty now this is also backfiring in the sense that it looks like sweden and finland are looking to join the eu and possibly nato and i think after this is done i think it's an all but certainty that ukraine would join the european union and or nato uh Maybe not, though. It, it, they, they can negotiate. I think the only clean way we can get out of this is if Russia uh, pulls back their troops to areas that they occupy currently and then start negotiations for the return of those areas in exchange for certain provisions, i.e. Ukraine remaining independent of the EU and NATO uh, in the form of a treaty. Now, part of this, part of these... Uh, Negotiations could be the return of Crimea to Ukraine. We don't know. We will see. Um, and hopefully cooler heads prevail here. So, like I said, that's about all the insight I have as far as Ukraine goes. Because, again, I'm not, I don't know a ton about Ukraine. I don't actively talk to anyone of Ukrainian descent. Or, obviously, I don't know anyone who lives in Ukraine at the moment. Nor do I know anyone from Taiwan. So that's pretty well all the information I have regarding that. But I think the overall arching point that I'm making here is that we've kind of the theme of this episode is that we've kind of created our own bed and we now have to lie in it. And we've reached a point where it's it's going to suck no matter what we do. The only question now is, is it going to suck now or is it going to suck more later? Because like we've seen Germany is pretty well dependent on Russia for its energy. Now, granted, they have boycotted russia so there's you know that's definitely going to help ukraine's uh plight but in the meantime it's gonna you know require german citizens to be paying a lot more for their energy unless they can find uh another source now thankfully it seems that recently i think this was in late february the european union is categorizing natural gas and nuclear as renewable energy sources much to the chagrin of greta thunberg who that brings me to another point, another annoyance of mine. Why are we listening to this child? Why were we ever... I know she's 19 now, but when she came on the scene, I believe she was 15. Why are we even entertaining this? This is right up there with, you know, the 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 Democrats wanting to lower the voting age to 16. Why are we listening to children? Because when I was 16, I was a fucking idiot. I'll freely admit that. Most 16-year-olds are. Now, I'm sure there are some smart ones, but they still, they lack the life experience to make informed decisions like this. They might know everything in theory, but that's how we get socialists in, you know, America. Because theoretically, it sounds great, but they lack, ask anyone who's ever lived in a socialist or communist country, none of them say it was good. There's a reason why they fucking leave. There's a reason why people jump on boats made from garbage to get out of Cuba, to come to the United States, risking their lives, their families' lives, risking everything to get the fuck out. I don't think it's because it's great there. Just throwing that out there. There's a reason why people willingly sell themselves into slavery to get out of North Korea, and many unwillingly, because they don't know any better, because North Korea censors everything and they have no idea, but some people, I'm sure, willingly do it because at least then they've got a chance to get out. It can't be because communism is great. And this is one of the few things that I get heated about because it's just so stupid. 
I can't fathom the, the mental path it takes for someone in the United States, which is arguably the greatest country in the history of the world. And don't worry, we have, I know, we have our problems, but let's compare notes here. Name a country that's better than the United States, truly. Truly. Name one. I'll wait. Actually, I won't wait. I'll keep talking. But if you can name one, I can probably tell you why you're wrong. Or if you're right, I'll acknowledge it. But it's certainly up there. It's certainly better than communist China. It's certainly better than North Korea. It's certainly better than Venezuela right now. It's certainly better than Cuba. There's no, there's no disputing that. Anywhere where the citizens cannot make their own destiny, the United States is better. Hands down. So why are we, you know, as a country, why are any of us even attempting to latch on to these stupid, moronic ideas that have not stood the test of time? They haven't stood the test of time. Every communist regime has fallen with the exception of North Korea and Cuba. Now, Cuba, oh, and China, but China and Cuba have both made a lot of changes to their communist policies, so it's debatable as to whether China's even really communist now. And Cuba, I mean, I think that's only a matter of time. There are protests every couple of years, and they keep relaxing restrictions, although I would consider them still communist. And it's only a matter of time before a lot of these socialist countries fall economically just because it's unsustainable. And for those of you, we've been over this before, the Nordic countries are not, the Scandinavian countries are not fucking socialist. So much so that the uh, president of Denmark actually requested that Bernie Sanders stop calling Denmark socialist. Anyway. My overarching point, oh, so Greta Thunberg. You know, there's a reason why we have a voting age. There's a reason why we have a drinking age. There's a reason even why we have a driving age, although that's debatable. All of those are debatable as to where the line is, but there's a reason why we have cutoffs for these things is because at a certain point, children are not equipped to make these kinds of decisions. And Greta Thunberg is no exception. In fact, I wondered why she gave a shit so much because I don't know too many 15-year-olds that are super-duper that involved. Now, of course, they're probably following suit from adults in their lives saying, save the whales, man, which I'm all for saving the whales. But at what cost? You know, that's the problem is a lot of these militant environmentalists don't look at the cost and they also refuse to acknowledge the progress that has been made and i think that's my biggest problem it's like yes we have work to do i'll acknowledge that i don't think you can't acknowledge that but let's really look at it i mean you can breathe in los angeles now for the most part i don't know do they still have smog problems i know it's gotten better I haven't been to la so i wouldn't know um, I don't think you can deny that, you know, the world is cleaner now than it was. Well, just in the fact that we eliminated lead and gasoline, that did enough. I mean, there was progress there. So, I mean, but are we seriously not going to acknowledge any of this? Really? Not to mention the leaps and bounds we've made in terms of refining our gasoline, uh, setting fuel standards, which are all good things. And then we have carbon capture on, uh, you know, exhaust now and natural gas, no matter how you slice it, natural gas is cleaner. This is, this isn't disputable. It's been done. Now, is it perfect? Absolutely not. But these are the same people that don't want nuclear because it's quote dangerous, but it's like, okay, but the world isn't made of rainbows, unicorns, and dreams. It's like you, there's a cost benefit for everything. 
Now, nuclear is a fantastic option, and the technology today is so far and above Chernobyl and even Fukushima. It's so far above that. So, can we... And thankfully, Greta's influence pretty well disappeared once she turned 18, because it was pretty obvious what they were doing. I've said it on this podcast, and I'll say it again. All they were doing with Greta was they took a kid who was being loud and obnoxious and should have been you know, told to shut up and go back to school. Oh, it says no data. Apparently we're still live, though. Excellent connection. Okay, sorry. So this kid should have just been slapped on the hand and said, sit down, shut up, and go to school. But instead, for some reason, the whole world started listening to her. Now, granted, they didn't all agree with her, but we listened to her. And honestly, actually, I think Trump did this. This all sh- the musings of a 15-year-old girl who doesn't have a fucking clue what she's talking about because there's no way she could. She's 15. She doesn't have time to do the this kind of studying that she would need to do. She's listening to activist adults, her parents, which, surprise, surprise, when I found out that her parents were activists. Shocker, I know. But adults took this kid that was getting some attention and said, hey you know, our opponents won't dare attack a child. And they were right, for the most part. And the people that did attack her, even attacking her for her beliefs and not her as a person, were still like, oh, you're just bullying a child. But thankfully, when she turned 18, that pretty well went out the window and everybody told her to shut up and she's been in relative obscurity ever since. She pops up every once in a while because I believe recently she was bitching about Germany. Oh, she was bitching about the EU categorizing natural gas and nuclear and nuclear is renewable, renewable. So my question to Greta would be, okay, what's the alternative? Like, what's your alternative solution that's realistic and can work? Because that is what I absolutely despise about people who do that kind of thing, is you bitch, you bitch, you bitch, but you don't offer up a solution. If you really want to effectuate change, invent some shit. Or at least find people who can invent some shit and help them. Like, I'm sure Greta could raise funds. Like, raise funds for nuclear fusion research or raise funds to make wind and solar viable to power the world. Like, I'm sure it can be done. We just haven't figured out how to do it yet. Do something that actually creates a change instead of just bitching, moaning, complaining and expecting lawmakers and governments to do anything because I think history has shown us that they, generally speaking, do a pretty piss-poor job of effectuating change around the world. I mean, fuck, Mark Zuckerberg did more in two years than most governments do in their entire lives to change the world. I mean, shit. But my overarching point off of that long and probably slightly obnoxious rant, but I don't care because it's my goddamn show, is that had it not been for direct action by the Obama and Biden administrations, uh, Europe would be in a better position, uh, sorry, the U.S. would be in a better position to help Europe boycott Russia because, love or hate the guy, during the Trump administration, and I think we still are, but we've definitely lowered our ability. We were the largest exporter of natural gas in the world, and we could have been sending it and some oil their way, saying, hey, look, let's choke Russia's economy even more, which, thankfully, they have done, but now it's going to be painful, more painful for their citizens because of this action. Because, thankfully, they are boycotting Russia anyway, and that's honestly what's going to really, really... uh 
stop all this is an economic or social collapse in Russia if Putin doesn't decide to uh, be smart about it and kind of just pull back and negotiate and hopefully doesn't get hit with too many uh, penalties of his own. And he would be thinking that, not me. I hope they throw the book at him. But you may be asking yourselves, what can be done? I've kind of gone into some of this already. Um, and again, I want to stress, these are just my opinions. Disagree if you would like, but I put a lot of thought into these, and I think these are some things that we could do to make the world a better place, at least in the immediate. It would lead to more prosperity, in my opinion. And as I said before, the bad part about this is we've reached a point of no return to a certain extent because this will suck in the immediate. There's no disputing it. But the best thing we can do is ramp up uh, natural gas and oil production domestically in the United States, or at the very least in North America, which would include things like the Keystone XL pipeline. I know that's a whole nother podcast, but the fact is that if they had gone through with that, we would be sitting better economically right now. Now, in addition to that, because that would take care of the immediate energy needs, uh, we definitely need to ramp up nuclear production. I, I just don't understand why we don't, you know, well, actually, I do, because a lot of, as, as Ben Shapiro put it, a lot of us are not in my backyard people. But frankly, I would be totally cool with a nuclear power plant in my backyard. I would be all for that. So if you all want to build one in Indianapolis, you got my sample of approval anyway. Um, but in addition to this, we can do more research and development into other green options. Now, we already have solar wind and beef up hydro where we can. You know, I don't think anybody would have a problem with hydro, but obviously you're limited to geographic uh concerns there but let's do some more research like let's I'm, we're we're smart as a species i know it's hard to see sometimes but we're pretty fucking smart like we can figure this we can figure this stuff out if we really really put our minds to it and if nothing else we can just ask elon musk if he has some ideas um and then unfortunately for our economic situation like i said we've reached a point of no return no matter how you slice it this is going to require tax increases now there are ways that we can affect less people at the bottom, but I think I already did this example on the podcast once, so I don't have the numbers fresh in my head, but like, let's just assume, I think there's something to the effect, let's just round down and say there's 300 million, actually, you know what? No, I'm going to look it up. The population of the United States. Or actually, I'm going to be more adult population of the United States. If I can type. Now, as of 2020, there are 258.3 million adults in the United States. So, what we're going to do then, too, is look at the unemployment rate. So we know how many of these people are not working. So we're, we're, oh, cool. They even have numbers. So 6.3 million people are unemployed. So if we take our, see what's that? I'm going to round this to 250. So if we take 250 million Americans minus the current unemployment rate of 6.3, so we'll call it six just to round down. That's 244 million Americans that are actively working. Now, let's say that we increase all of, let's just say we put a deficit cut tax 
in effect every year for $1. Every working American pays $1. That's $244 million just from that. They could go straight to the deficit. And of course, you can increase that. I don't think it's unrealistic. I don't even think it's unrealistic to say take, say, $100 a year, a year. $100 a year in income tax just to pay down the deficit. So let's just say $250 million. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of fucking money. So that's just one of the ways you can do it without, you know, making it really hurt. And then obviously you could increase tax rate. The problem is with our tax system is that when you close one loophole, it's made in such, there's so many ways to hide it. And we can get into a debate about taxation in the United States and how valid or invalid it is. But it's it, there's no mistake that the super ultra wealthy are able to skip out on taxes. So... We could close some loopholes, make it a little bit harder to hide money and this kind of thing. Um, but like I said, I think that whole like dollar a year tax just and it goes straight to the deficit to pay off debt. And then the United States can sell some shit, I'm sure, because I'm sure we own tons of shit. There's a lot of things we can do. We just don't do them because, again, it would suck. You know, it would be painful. But I would rather take more pain in a short term than yeah, more immediate pain in a short term over less pain, but over a longer period of time. And even that, because it's still going to suck. Because what we've basically been doing for the past 20 years, essentially, uh, at least for the past five, is just we've been kicking the can, probably the last 10 in a hardcore way. And 2008 was a symptom of it. We've just been kicking the can down the road, you know, say, ah, we'll deal with it later. But for right now, here's some duct tape. Well, eventually you're going to run out of... You're going to run out of stuff to take. So, and like I said, we've now reached a point where tax increases are pretty well imminent. But if I were, if I were emperor tomorrow, in addition to the tax increase, it would also come with an attached government spending freeze um, until the deficit reaches a certain number that we could be agreed upon. Because I don't, I think it's unrealistic to expect it to go down to zero with that government freeze and the high taxation, but we can get it to a place that's a little bit healthier for sure. So that spending freeze would go into effect, uh, particularly for non-essential things. And then I would also be a fan of going through the entire budget. Um, and I believe you could do this without slashing the military, although you probably could slash military spending to a point where it's not detrimental. Uh, just find shit that's not essential. Like, I think, uh, I think this is gone now, but I remember in the early to mid-2000s, they were talking about a website for a desert tortoise that was no longer endangered, and it was something to the effect of, like, $30,000 a month. Um, a little bit ridiculous. And plus, members of Congress are fairly fucking rich anyway. Not all of them, but some of them certainly are. I've touched on this already, but um, to fix the world again, Putin needs to stop... Uh, the action in Ukraine immediately and negotiate some sort of settlement to end hostilities uh, permanently. And then China is a big part of at least, well, most of the world's prosperity. China, the China situation is trickier because we kind of dug ourselves into a hole that is not easily gotten out of. Um, the biggest thing is the United States just needs to become more competitive because we're still the number one economy, but China's really getting up there. And I've seen some figures that uh, say that by 2050, they will actually overtake us if the trends don't change. Now, the good thing is there's a lot of evidence to suggest that a, this sounds bad, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that an economic collapse could befall China 
again, it, particularly a real estate collapse. Uh, that's a whole nother thing. You can research that as well. Um, but basically, China needs to go into an economic downturn, not necessarily a depression, but basically their economy needs to stop growing at the rate that it is growing. And the problem that we face with China, too, is they're doing a lot of international investing right now, and they're doing it in very, very shady ways. Because essentially, what, and again, this is the average intelligence explanation of what they're doing abroad, particularly in places like Africa and even to some extent in South America. Uh, they're going into these very, very poor countries that need an economy boost, essentially. They need to be able to create jobs. So they'll go in and basically loan them money to build infrastructure, but these countries are so poor, they really can't pay it. And in a lot of, all, in a lot of these agreements, and it could not be cash, it could be in exchange for mineral rights or things like that, because they've been caught in Mexico uh, funding cartels and anti-cartels, where one of the largest known sources of lithium in the world is in an area in Mexico, uh, and they were caught, basically, funding an anti-cartel to get the cartel out of that area so they could come in and get mineral rights to it behind the back door. Uh, but essentially what they're doing, like, they will make these agreements that if they can't pay, they just take over control of the factory or the infrastructure or what have you. And that's what they're doing all over the world, particularly in Africa. Now, Africa has some of the fastest growing economies in the world. And these these places are going at startling rates. I don't know, capitalism, right? Who cares? Who thought? Uh, faster than even the UN speculated they would. So China is uh, going to be tricky. I think more and more trade tariffs need... It's not that I don't want people to trade with China. I just want China to play fair. And that's been the biggest problem. And the intellectual, and this is hard to enforce because intellectual property theft is easy in a country, but internationally it's trickier. Um, but China basically just needs to be made to play by the rules, whether that's through economic sanctions, tariffs, what have you. I don't know how it would happen, but that really does need to happen. Um, and then another thing that needs to happen is the COVID nonsense needs to end immediately because at this point it's pretty obvious that anything going on now is pretty well just theater i mean i'm shocked that anyone would trust the mainstream media when it comes to covid or the i'm sorry the beer bug anymore just because i mean it's they've been shown to be lying and or wrong on virtually everything except for the fact that it is a virus i mean they're right on that and I don't need to go into it for fear of being silenced and deplatformed on YouTube. But the biggest thing is we need a legitimate international, internationally cooperative investigation uh, to find out if the Wuhan lab was in fact responsible and we need definitive proof. And if it was responsible, then somehow, some way, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, needs to be punished, if possible, economically. Because, I mean... The entire world's just spent an insane amount of money to uh, basically combat this pandemic. And if, if the Chinese Communist Party is even indirectly responsible. And so even, and this is what I believe, I believe it was an accident. Um, I don't think it was an accident they were making these viruses. I think they were incredibly unsafe. I don't think it was meant to be released. It certainly wasn't a weapon, I don't believe. But when it happened... The Chinese government had an opportunity to let the world know what was going on, and it's 
become pretty clear that not only did they not tell people, but they actively hid this information. And there are many who suspect that even one of the doctors may have been assassinated for trying to get the word out there. And then finally, the other thing, and particularly I'm talking to America here, is we need to put on our big boy pants. And I said big boy pants for a reason, because all of this nonsensical being offended over every little thing is contributing probably the most to the downfall of our country and economy. At a certain point, I know that everybody's different, everybody's got their shit, everybody has problems, you know, but at a certain point, as a society, we need to get the fuck over it. Yes, I understand there's racism in the world. I totally get that. Yes, I understand there are homophobic people in the world. Yes, there are transphobic people in the world, but these are not the majority. And the suggestion that our society is inherently evil is just... These days, I don't see anything to substantiate it. Now, we can debate historically, and I'm more than happy to do it, and I might even agree with you, but... I, I, I just, I don't see how you can say that you live in the United States today and you are actively oppressed by the government. I, well, I mean, you are oppressed by the government, but you know what I mean. Like, exactly what rights do you not have that everybody else has? There are none. And I've had it up to here with a bunch of the people from my generation bitching, moaning, and complaining well, you know, I'm never going to get married or buy a house. Guess what? Did it. Guess what? No tons of people our age and younger who did it and are doing it. It's not, yes, the, I, I will concede. The deck is stacked against you because of economic decisions that previous generations in the political sphere have made, but it's not impossible. You just need to figure out a way to make it happen. And Yes, there are some circumstances that are beyond people's control, and some people are in a legitimately bad situation. I'm not disputing that. But just because someone is in a bad situation doesn't mean you are in a bad situation. And statistically speaking, it's probably your fault if you live in the United States today and you are broke. It is more than likely your fault, statistically speaking. Now, here's another problem with our society is people are going to argue... Oh, well, I know somebody, yes, I'm sure you do, although you probably don't, but I'm sure you think you know somebody who's poor because of something that's not their fault. But guess what? You're wrong. Just statistically speaking, you are wrong. People need to stop operating on possibility and start operating more on probability. Because, like, yes, it's possible you know someone who is poor and is never going to make it for reasons that are completely beyond their control, but it is not likely not in the united states in 2022 it's just it's just statistically not likely so instead of coming up with all these excuses why you can't do shit maybe we should start coming up with i don't know ideas on how we can do shit there's lots of options case in point when the covid pandemic was going on there was there were a there's so there was so much money and i think there's still money there was so much money going out for rental and mortgage assistance, and they never ran out of it. There's still surplus because people didn't seek out that help. Why wouldn't you seek out that help if you needed it? And they made it crystal clear that it was available, and I'll tell you exactly why. It's because it required work. You had to 
call somebody and you had to submit documentation and you had to go find old tax returns and you had to find your W-2 and you had to, you know, you had to go through all the work and provide your unemployment information. It was just so, and you were so stressed out because you didn't know what was going to happen and you were scared to go outside and this, that, and the other, even though you totally went to, you know, restaurants when they opened up and you totally went to that concert you wanted to go to and you totally went to go buy you know, your cigarettes and your alcohol, and you totally went to go out to fast food. You went through the drive-thru. So don't, don't, don't give me that bullshit. Just don't give it to me. We got to put our big boy pants on and start acting like adults because, newsflash, the government isn't going to fix shit for you. They're going to try and they're going to promise to, but even if they wanted to, which, trust me, they don't want to fix your life. They want your vote, and they're going to promise that they're going to fix your life, even though there's no possible way they can. But even if they wanted to, they're so terrible at doing literally everything that they're just going to fuck it up even more. So you better put on your grown-up pants. There we go. I'll I'll be PC for the last part. Put on your grown-up pants or dress, whichever you prefer, and start doing your own shit. Because nobody's going to do it for you. Not really. And it's like all the people that are hoping and praying for Biden to keep his promise and and the student loan loan forgiveness to bring it in. Not going to happen. Called that shit on day one. It's not going to happen. So you better stop hoping he's going to stop it. You better stop, stop, you better stop hoping that he's going to make your student loans disappear and figure out a way to get those bastards paid off. The good news is, It's literally never been easier to make money in the world today because of the internet. It's literally never been easier. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's never been easier than it is right now. And you also live in one of the few times in American history where the demand for workers is just ridiculous. You could get a job tomorrow. You literally can get a job. It may not be the job that you want. It's not going to be your dream job, but you can be making money. And we need. We also need to get rid of this notion that if you just land that dream job, you'll be happy. Because first of all, you're not going to be happy every single day of your life unless you make enough money and make certain moves to where you're financially independent. Then you'll probably be happy most days. And it's possible. I know it's possible. I know people who've done it, even in this economy. I know people who don't go to work, and no, I'm not just talking about my co-host that I hate immensely for the fact that he no longer has a required day job. I have plenty of clients that don't go to work every day. They work when they want to, and they work when they have to, but it's not an everyday thing. Like, they don't have a job. They don't have a nine-to-five job, and they're some of the happiest people I know. They're also some of the wealthiest people I know, so there's a correlation there. But anyway, I think you've listened to me rant for more than long enough. And some of you stuck out pretty well the whole way. So thank you for the views. And if you're watching this uh, after the live stream, feel free to comment. I'm still going to see them, even if you, especially if you disagree with me, comment. So I will give our spiel and then I will let you go. Well, you can leave whenever you want, but you know what I mean. Thank you for enjoying this episode of the Average Intelligence Podcast. As always, if you missed the live stream, which happens on Sundays at 8.30 p.m., starts anyway, and goes till question mark, because you never know when I'm going to stop talking.
You can check it out anytime on the YouTube channel. And you can also check out our clips there from our various episodes. And each clip has a link to the full episode that it came from. And if you prefer to just listen instead of look at our ugly mugs while we talk about fun stuff like inflation and war and whatnot, we're not always this negative, I promise. In fact, Eric usually lightens up the mood more than I. I'm just a pessimist. Fuck. Anyway, you can check us out on our many audio streaming platforms, which include but are not limited to Anchor.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Now, Stitcher, Amazon Music, which does include Audible. So if you have Audible, you can take a break from reading, reading the great American novel or the great Russian novel, Dostoevsky, yo, and enjoy the lowbrow quality content of the Average Intelligent Podcast. And then you can go back to reading your highbrow shit. <clears throat> and if you wish to support the podcast, you can support us directly on our Anchor.fm page, which is just... It, it's the link is down below uh you can also check out our official merchandise store where you can pick up merchandise from not only the average intelligence podcast which has our the monkey shirt as well as our aoc kiss my, kiss the ass t-shirt which is helping her on her crusade to tax the rich by making us rich so buy a t-shirt and join the fight you can also find merchandise from for all you pro wrestling fans out there you can also check out merchandise from the uh down the middle podcast as well as rta media merchandise and more to come every day so we thank you for enjoying this episode once again and we will see you next week until then have a good night and invest your money because inflation's coming